We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into the Rotowire NFL podcast. I am your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. This edition of the Rotowire NFL podcast, as always, sponsored by our friends over at WinBet. Mario, how are you on this fine Thursday? Uh, I'm fine. It's getting rainy, and so uh, in my room I'm recording from looks darker, even darker than usual. Um, so it's. I just want to make it known, like I'm not voluntarily just sitting in the dark, like like you may have seen previously. Like I really tried this time. There's just nothing to do. Yeah, you know the the take bunker. Um, it it exists for a reason, and and it can be affected by, I have by the, the light conditions on. and forces of nature. One hour a week, I have this light on, and it's it's on, and it's you know, it's just all we have in these facilities. Fair enough. I'm I'm at the uh, Rotowire HQ, and I got the got the ring light going and the overhead fluorescence, so I'm looking uh, extra oily today. I think uh, no, nice. <laughs> just it's it's a proper it's a good time shine. Of the year that, to look oily. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, man. Uh, with the with the gas shortage and everything. Um, anywho. Let's talk some football. Uh, we got a lot to get to today. We're going to get into uh, your most recent article, taking stock of some best ball trends. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about Josh Jacobs and, and how he fits into the, the draft configuration, the draft picture. Um, that'll be an interesting one. Also going to keep our, our series of deep dives going. Today, we're going to go up north a little bit. We're going to hit the Lions and the Vikings, break down their offenses from a fantasy perspective. The the Lions one I'm particularly interested in because there, there's just so much unknown uh, with that entire skill group. So, you know, there, there could be kind of uh, diamonds in the rough late in drafts that we could find and unearth. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about Javante Williams. Uh, it's been mm, three weeks since we talked about him or something. So we got to bring him back. Got to bring him back into the discourse. But Mario, let's lead things off talking Josh Jacobs. So I think it's fair to say that neither of us have always have been like the pound the table guys for Josh Jacobs in the past. Um, you know, whether it was him as a draft prospect during his time at Alabama or through his first two seasons of his NFL career. But he, he's been, a, a, of course, a productive, useful fantasy player, um, even if like the, the efficiency and all that isn't always uh, the best. But it feels like the market, as you, as you note in your article, 
has really cooled on him, and a lot of it may have to do with the signing of Kenyon Drake uh, this offseason, you know, maybe coming for some of those snaps. But what's kind of the the latest read from you as far as Jacobs and and why he's going as late as he is, and, and does that make him uh, someone to consider uh, at ADP? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we were not just kind of uh... – we, we were we were more hostile, I think, than we were indifferent and certainly, you know, partial toward Jacobs. Like we we were kind of like, man, why the hell are they talking about him like a first round pick? He wasn't even better than Damian Harris. And even now, I don't think he's better than Damian Harris. I think I think Damian Harris is better. But we don't particularly at this new price need Jacobs to be especially good. We just need him to be the guy who gets a certain number of carries in the Raiders offense. And uh, as long as Derek Carr stays healthy, as long as John Gruden keeps that offense uh, well sequenced with its play calling and everything. I think they're still going to, they're going to move the chains and stuff. Probably not going to be one of the highest scoring offenses, but they shouldn't be bad. And if you have a running back who's approaching 20 carries a game and an offense that isn't terrible, then they probably shouldn't be falling into the mid fifth round, which is uh, these might've been extreme cases like uh, unusual anecdotes, but I did a couple underdog uh, mega tournament or whatever it's called drafts. And he seems to be falling pretty regularly to the late fourth at this point, and will often fall uh, a little bit into the fifth. And in one case, I got him uh, a couple picks after Mike Davis, which feels very wrong to me. Like, uh, true, Kenyon Drake is not the backup you really want to see behind a, a guy that you're drafting at running back, and you don't want to see a team spend uh, whatever it was, however many ten million or whatever guaranteed on the backup like that with Drake uh, in Jacobs's case. But there's there's just enough room in that offense for Jacobs to, to kind of get um, to a point, especially with a fifth-round standard rather than, like, the, the high second or late first like he was last year. Um, mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel like right now he's even going, like, a, a round or two later than he was his rookie year, which uh, – so, so me and you, John, were probably low on him during those two eras of, of that high price. And now that he's falling into the fifth, it kind of – David Montgomery last year like we were not high on him at all as a prospect especially in his rookie year we weren't paying the price and then we start doing some drafts last year and not because we sat around thinking wow David Montgomery is so good maybe we were wrong about him like that's that's not what it was but we got to the drafts and it was like hey I think I think I want to kind of pick a David Montgomery maybe a bunch because he's, he's so much cheaper than before and everyone hates him now and it's like people make these expectations that are unreasonable in the first place hold it against the players rather than themselves and kind of let it bleed into their projections for the next year. And I think that's pretty much happening with Jacobs right now. Like he, at, at this new price anyway, he's just not that risky because the, the upside is basically not being acknowledged. And uh, the, the floor is, is presupposed as, as lower than it actually is. Like it's, it's just uh, when he's going later than a guy like Davis, especially who I know he's, he's, he's locked in for, or he's projected for a pretty nice role right now, certainly with the Falcons, but a, even as even as a Jacob skeptic, I would say Davis is not particularly close to him as a talent. And B, there's definitely running backs in the NFL who maybe not like a Leonard Fournette case exactly, but guys who who are just vaguely good who get cut or put up available for trade could end up on the Falcons and just make Davis like a ninth round pick overnight, you know? So taking mm-hmm. him over a guy like Jacobs, who is definitely going to be in the offense, like maybe maybe someone like me is, is too optimistic about how much of the offense with Jacobs, but there will be some amount guaranteed, and it's definitely higher than whatever floor you have in mind with 
with uh, Mike Davis. So um, I, I just think that Kenyon Drake is not there to like take the job. It's because Gruden just thinks having backup running backs is cool. So I guess explain uh, the path to which Jacobs, you know, is able to maintain that or, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a moving target. You know, the, we're not expecting him to return first round value like we were a, a year ago or, or what his ADP presupposed. We're talking again, you know, fourth, uh, er, early fifth, that type of thing. But still, you know, assuage the concerns about about the J or the Kenyon Drake time, potential timeshare. Like what what does the, the path stay on when it comes to Jacobs to where he can return value at ADP? Well, uh, I, I don't know what exactly the yardage count we'd need, what touchdown count we'd need for him to be useful in the late fifth. I guess, admittedly, some of my reasoning is just kind of looking at what's going earlier than him and simply not seeing the basis for projecting those players higher and especially not higher than they they actually go. But basically, when you look at Jacobs and, and the way that this Raiders offense shapes up, the way even with Kenyon Jake around that it shapes up, I think it's pretty easy to see a scenario where Jacobs gets to over 250 carries, health permitting, especially with the 17th game added. I think it would have been the case for 16 games, but for 17 games, definitely. And you don't need to be aggressive with the snap count that you project to get to that number. He can just stop. You can put like a ceiling of 600 snaps on your Josh Jacobs projection this year. And I think that number that you get, if you if you vaguely keep up with his previous per snap uh, carry and target rates, like he'll easily clear it. And maybe with maybe there's more upside to consider there too. But for me, even as a Jacobs skeptic who's not really thinking about the upside possibility. The floor, I think, is is being under acknowledged because, uh, like you, you look at Devonte Booker and and Jalen Richard last year in that offense with with Jacobs missing a game. So with that missed game, you can kind of make that similar to, uh, you know, if you if you want to project a decrease in his his usage rate because of Drake being there, it's like fine. You can look at last year's offense over fifteen games, and there's still something like four hundred snaps available for Drake, something where he could get up to one hundred and fifteen carries. And 40 targets, uh, as long as he's taking Jalen Richard's uh, usage too. And Jalen Richard is a cut candidate. He's he's not on the hook for much money. If if they want to justify Kenyon Drake by taking Richard out of the offense, they can easily do it. And even if he also takes a little bit from Jacobs, it's still again something where you get to like 250 carries, and it's not that hard. So I, I can understand being concerned about Jacobs' durability, like the shoulder, his rookie year, and then last year the ankle. He also played like through a hip injury or something like that last year. Uh, but it's it's I think more for that reason that J- John Gruden wanted to go get Kenyon Drake uh, was because it's just like he likes to run the offense through the running back, and if the running back breaks, he doesn't like to rebuild the offense because all that he has left is Jalen Richard. So he he has Drake there for like expensive albeit but insurance and i think he's also rationalizing it but he'll give us better reps than richard too so it's worth the money so and he could very well be right uh i mean i, I think it's a pretty crazy amount of money they gave drake especially in the second year he's, he's gonna cost like eight million against the cap Ooh. next year but i think that's just because gruden's a guy of like the late 90s early 2000s and teams liked to have a uh, really good backup running backs back then. And he, he doesn't probably understand the cap at all. So trying to, trying to make it like, Oh, would you, do you think John Gruden would pay the 22nd highest running back salary for a guy just to be a backup? Yeah, I do. I think he could think much <laughs> dumber than that too. He, I think he could, for instance, draft Damon Arnett in the first round of an NFL draft and then maybe cut him the next year. 
Um, yeah, so it's to, to, to assume that John Gruden of all people is, is going to be on the cutting edge of efficiency and like a responsible spending is just to not know who that guy is. <laughs> I, I, all I'm saying, bring back Charlie Garner and Tyrone Wheatley. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I, I guess uh, we, we don't have the Charlie Garner part here. If he wanted to do that, he's, he's going to find out Drake's the Wheatley and, and Jacobs is, is the actually good one. There we go. Oh, man. Those are some fun uh, Raiders Wheatley teams. It, it, Gruden 1.0. Charlie Garner was awesome. <laughs> the aesthetics on Wheatley, though, were so strong. That's just, true. Like, Giant like Him just like running dudes over on the baseball diamond at the Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> It doesn't get much yeah. better than that. Um, just but huge, look, huge guy. Just a, yes, absolutely massive. Um, looking elsewhere, or staying here, actually. Um, so we've talked about how Jacobs and and Drake can kind of coexist in this offense and how Jacobs, you project him for 600 or so snaps. You know, and th- is that like a, re- a, if that's a conservative or just kind of realistic uh, projection? for, for his, last okay. year. Yeah, last year he ran 616 snaps in 15 games. So even if you project him losing snaps to Drake, he gets to 600, certainly in 16 games, certainly in 17 if, if you know, his luck cooperates uh, with his durability. So, yeah, I don't feel like I'm being aggressive when I'm projecting this kind of like, I don't know what you would say, I guess like, uh, I would say median range is like 1,100 rushing yards and a good chance at eight plus touchdowns because – uh, other than maybe Brian Edwards and and of course Darren Waller, they don't have an obvious way to score touchdowns if they get into scoring range. And Derek Carr can at least move the chains, get you into scoring range. Like he's he's never been terrible at that. It's more kind of like the touchdowns and the big plays when you really need them, kind of thing. So we don't need at this price for Jacobs to be like a heroic player. We just need him to be better, uh, you know, more productive than. Uh, you know, Mike Davis and I don't know, I wouldn't be surprised if not to, not to go to the Javante part too soon, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 10 days or so you start to see Javante Williams go ahead of Josh Jacobs that maybe just being paranoid and that'll never happen. And I'm making up a guy to get mad at right now, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, that's all. That's always fun to do anyway. And, and uh, to your point about, you know, the, the, the touchdown uh, upside and, you know, the usage uh, looks like according to our, uh, handy dandy red zones uh stats here on rotowire on josh jacobs player page he had 68 red zone touches last year so that's a it's a pretty good amount so you you do and he converted a lot of them in, into touchdowns he had 12 rushing scores uh last season of course so uh we can definitely envision him get like getting the work uh down when the raiders get there and like you said the raiders uh even if it's not sexy and even if Derek carr is not like our favorite guy in the world like you still have to respect that they can they can move the ball on people. They did it last year, and they're they're going to do it um, again. Uh, so rounding it out in regards to Drake and where he's going, do you think that he might actually be a value as well? Given that you know Jacobs is going to soak up those six hundred or so snaps, maybe uh, Drake can push for those four hundred or so, and and you know have those be you know a high high touch per snap uh, type of role. Yeah, I think that it's not just Jacobs, it's Drake also who's kind of getting penalized for being a fantasy disappointment last year. And Drake was, a you know, he, he ended up with those 10 touchdowns and 900 yards or whatever, but people were taking ahead of like uh, like Nick Chubb and maybe even Aaron Jones, guys like that. So it was a pretty disastrous pick. If you had Kenyon Drake last year, your team probably lost and you probably don't like him. And uh, so if you're in drafts now, you're, you, you basically 
not looking at him. And I feel like sometimes I see him fall into the 11th round. And I'm not going to say he needs to go sooner than that, but I, I think he's definitely a reasonable pick in that range. And I think also it's worth thinking about his uh, how, how he fits into that general category of running backs who are backups who we imagine as high upside in the event that the starter gets injured. Because you see a pretty inconsistent standard, I think, across the pricing of guys like him, Tony Pollard, uh, Alex Madison. Like Tony Pollard's still going at that maximum price in that group, but I don't know that there's an objectively different projection for him uh, than for like Drake or Madison or even a guy like Devontae Booker behind Saquon Barkley. So I think there are some of those handcuff running backs that people pay too much for, and I, I don't think Drake is one of them, even though – it's not like I think he's a you know obvious mega buy right now or anything like that. So taking a look at, at ADP from over from the uh, NFFC dating back to uh, the beginning of this month, uh, I'll give you a toss up between these three. So Drake, Zach Moss, and Damian Harris kind of going in in that same cluster um, in like the, so, the ninth or so round. Yeah, that one's. Um... I guess the PPR scoring there might make it a little different, uh, especially as it goes with, uh, you know, Damien Harris, because I don't know if we expect him to catch 10 passes this year. Uh, an underdog, the, the half-point PPR makes it a little easier, I think, to, to rationalize Harris. And I, I love Harris as a talent, but... Um, so, yeah, I, I would probably go Harris, but I, that might be me being a little too confident in my like prospect evaluation of him. I will say that I, I do think Zach Moss is a really good three-down player. If, if he's, for some reason gets the usage i'm confident he will outplay devin singletary i'm just kind of concerned that the, the the buffalo offense would basically need josh allen to get hurt for moss to get the, the rushing uh workload especially that he, that he would need to break out but um drake i would probably yeah leave in even third there but it's it's not because i'm i'm like uh it's not because I'm, I feel that confident about it. It's just that I, I think he's a little bit further away from the field. Certainly, a lot further away from the field than Harris is. I, th- I would think Harris is the pretty clear starter there. Right. Okay. So that that makes sense. Distilling it down uh, like that. Boy, a lot of Alabama running back discussion to to open things up. Uh, so there's that. Eddie Lacy uh, should still be in the league too. He just had to. <laughs> had to eat his way out of the the whole league and it's it's a bummer because he was like the best one he was the best ever man dude he he uh yeah he broke my heart in 2012 um so um i'm okay with with him uh being being out of the out of sight out of mind but no but he was a fun player though i'll, I'll give you that um let's see uh before we move on to javante williams quick word from our sponsors We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's pick it back up. Going over to Javante Williams. So obviously the rookie out of North Carolina. Um, he's had very loud uh, proponents throughout the draft season. And then, you know, the landing spot, pretty fortuitous. I think we, we could agree that uh, going into the draft, there were only a handful of teams that, that you felt like were prime candidates to take it an early round running back Denver kind of what was among them, even though they, they have Melvin Gordon under contract, of course. Um, but Either way, uh, you know, the, the buzz is only going to continue to grow when it comes to Williams. And do you think that that's sending his, his current ADP a little bit too high? And, and are people writing off Melvin Gordon too soon? We'll see where it goes. I think if, if Williams stays in that kind of seventh round sort of range, that he makes, you know, he makes enough sense, especially if you're a team that went cheap at running back in the early rounds and, and you're at the point in the draft where you're like, I need to take somebody or I'm not going to get anybody. And Javante is the highest one on the board. If you're in that situation, I get it. But man, seeing, seeing that guy, I, I'm just rattled by that one person in that draft taking Mike Davis ahead of Josh Jacobs, because now it's like when people start working themselves about, uh, up about theories of like three down upside and, uh, you know, workhorse upside, they start, they start just making a lot of leaps of faith that they probably shouldn't. And I, I don't want to say that I, I think lowly of Williams or anything like that. I, I feel like I am pretty consistently clear that I think he's pretty good. You know, like I think he's um, a, a player who projects as a totally decent, viable starting prospect eventually, at least maybe not right away, but eventually um, I don't think he in any particular respect looks like a star prospect, um, but I don't think he needs to be one. I think he can be, Kind of in that, like, Miles Sanders. Like, I think he's better than David Montgomery. Uh, I don't think he's as there good go. as, as, like, Cam Akers last year. Um, so I think he's about as good as Zach Moss. And I, I think that a player like him could be quite good if, if a certain opportunity came about and, and if, if you could get him at a certain price before that. But what we're seeing right now is, is a kind of, like, not just the assumption of Gordon leaving, which maybe that could happen. I have no idea. They're not, like, bound to him cap-wise, but... I don't know. They maybe they keep him, maybe they don't. Let's just say they don't. Even if they don't keep Melvin Gordon, there's still Royce Freeman on that roster and Mike Boone, who they apparently like. I didn't. I kind of missed that in the off season when they went and signed him, and immediately Vic Fangio took to the press to be like, "We love Mike Boone." So that that might be kind of like not 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 the same sort of player, but a, a similar out of nowhere prominence, kind of like JD McKissick last year. Like Scott Turner went mm -hmm. and signed him right away in free agency. It was like, why would they do that? Who cares? It's J.D. McKissick. And it just, for whatever reason, turned out they wanted to use him a lot. And Boone could be that kind of thing. Uh, I don't really know. I don't know either way. But he and Royce Freeman are both more athletic than Javante Williams. And especially uh, Royce Freeman was a more productive player in college by miles. So we have a guy like Royce Freeman who's bigger, faster, quicker, 
more productive in college than Javante Williams. Freeman has, yes, been disappointing in the NFL, but there's – A, it's still a little bit early. Like, you don't want to write him off forever. There's a chance he just kind of had, like, three disappointing years for no good reason. He could break out, especially if he's on a different team. But B, that that kind of case like Royce Freeman is, is one that should make you reconsider why we're so sure that Devontae Williams is going to be a great NFL player. Because I'm not saying that he has worse odds than Freeman at this point. Like Freeman's already given us reason to doubt him as, as an NFL sure. player and Williams hasn't. But if a guy is fa- as fast and big and quick and productive as Freeman can di- still disappoint – then why are we sure that a guy who was worse in every metric would definitely be better, especially right away? And Mike Boone, he, he's more athletic too. He had he he fell apart like his last year at Cincinnati, but before he was hurt in that last year at Cincinnati, he was very productive there. So I'm I'm just saying those two can do stuff. They're not they're not useless, and they're definitely not bad athletes. They are definitely better athletes than than Williams. So if Williams is going to be a better player. He's going to have to find a way to be a better player despite having an athletic disadvantage. And that, that's totally possible. He really might have just kind of like the vision, killer instinct, motor, stuff like that, balance to, to be better than them, even though they're faster and bigger than him. But he needs that. And not many people seem to look at it that way. They seem to as if they, they seem to think he is the best athlete of the three and he isn't. And I think there's also the element of um, a lot of what kind of drove his his proponents uh, during the pre-draft process was, you know, his ability to break tackles and, and his physicality. And then, you know, he checks in and he's not actually like built like an NFL power running back. So like that, you know, right. that stylistic like issue. Right. So he's not built like Nick and he's Chad, not as like fast. <laughs> no. Yeah. So like th- those are two potential things that, that I think were either just kind of like overlooked or, or one way or the other. I mean, you, you were right on it when, um, you know, during the North Carolina pro day where it's like, Oh, that is not, that is not an ideal way in for, for him. And, and, uh, you know, I tend to agree because, uh, you know, we did just see this two years ago with David Montgomery where, um, yes, he had all those broken tackles in college, but like that was because he wasn't getting away from people. And then, you know, that broken right. tackle rate is going to come way down once you get to the NFL and you get more sure tacklers around you and faster, bigger athletes and everything. So you're not gonna be able to break those tackles the same way. So uh, Javante will kind of need to find find a way to to make it work one way or the other. And, and you know, the, the tools are, are, you know, good, like starter level, but but um, maybe not quite what what people are envisioning, uh, especially with with where uh as high as they might take him. Yeah. And John, don't you think it's strange that no one was hyping Javante Williams as a prospect, not even as like a mid road kind of guy, like no one was hyping him before the 2020 season. And it's no. not that we never saw him. We, he was hanging around, but what do you know? He, he's right at about five yards a carry his first year. He's at 5.6 yards per carry with only five touchdowns on 166 carries his second year. Then in 2020, you know, with a, with one of the best downfield passing games in the nation, keeping the safeties back and keep, concerned about the quarterback run threat as well. Both Williams and Michael Carter both see their numbers skyrocket. And Mm -hmm. I think it is possible that both Williams and Carter are both very good and like uh, clear starters, maybe even above average starters in the NFL. But they kind of do both need to be for either of them to be, including Williams. Like how is Williams seeing his production perfectly correlate to Michael Carter's unless they're of a similar quality of player? There's no basis to project them divergently on the basis of tools. Javante Williams is not more toolsy than Michael Carter, even though Michael Carter's, you know, probably a little bit below average. Uh, 
uh, tools wise. Javante Williams is below average tools wise for his weight. So, uh, it's, it's not great. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, you have Kareem Hunt, he, he ran the four, six, two or whatever it was. And he's plenty explosive in the NFL, but he also ran that at two twenty or something like that. He wasn't two twelve. Uh, he ran it at a combine too. It wasn't at a pro day track. So there's just, there's these kinds of just exceptions that people make these, these, uh, these just leaps of faith that they keep making for Javante Williams. And at the very least, if you get yourself hyped up for a player because you think they're Nick Chubb and then they turn out to not be at all like that, I want to see a revised narrative, you know, and I'm ne- I've never seen the attempt. They just said like, Oh, well he's still Chubb. Uh, I can just say, hey, 40 times aren't always real, you know. This guy didn't run a great 40, and look at him. It's like, yeah, well, Mm -hmm. that guy wasn't 15 pounds lighter either. So you're just – you're being very arbitrary about this. And if someone was – if the market for Javante existed as it currently does – and people instead said things like, yeah, I think he could be like a little bit slower, but a much tougher Miles Sanders. I would be like, hey, that's fair. Uh, if that's all, if that's what you think of him and that's how you got to this valuation, I guess you're not being crazy when you say that. But if you say he's worth this much, he's worth X because he is Chubb and he is not Chubb, then he's not worth X. Somebody's just wrong here. And I don't think uh, I, don't, I don't think it's me. <laughs> I'm, I don't think so either, man. So I think I think you have that dialed right up. Um, let's go ahead, jump on over to the Lions. Let's go ahead and dive in on those Detroit Lions. Very, very new look uh, group that they have. Obviously, the, one of the biggest splashes of the entire offseason. Going ahead and making that trade, getting rid of Matthew Stafford, bringing in Jared Goff. So that that immediately gives them a, a pretty significant downgrade at quarterback. Uh, obviously, a new coaching staff in tow. Kenny Galladay is gone. So, you know, it's this group of receivers at the top where you got Tyrell Williams, you know, trying to, you know, latch on. Brashad Perriman, same deal. Quintez Cephas, I, I think he can stick. Uh, and then, of course, they spent a draft pick on Amon Ross St. Brown. Um, so, what is your view? vision of, of how this offense is going to look you know what are the components who's the offensive coordinator and you know what what kind of stylistic things are they going to bring to the table that, that was different uh from last year in detroit so it's anthony lynn is technically the offensive coordinator but i think it's not so much that he has a scheme that he was hired to implement as much as dan campbell the head coach uh, previously the tight ends coach, I want to say for the saints under Sean Payton for something like six yep. years. Uh, he was like the interim for like five games for the dolphins a while ago. Uh, he's the head coach. And I think he's the guy who more or less has, has the vision here. And I'm guessing Dan Campbell, like, I know people want to just kind of box him in as like a, a run obsessed caveman throwback coach. I think he's more like a, a, a futuristic caveman. And I nice. think he, he's the yes, caveman he's still, that picked up the tool. Yeah. You'll still see him like eating roadkill or something, but he's, he's also got, he's got a calculator on him and he's, he's not afraid to check it out once in a while. Like when he needs to figure out what to tip or whatever. And he's, he's going to be willing to look at things fr- from, I think a variety of perspectives that, People aren't really accustomed to seeing from coaches. I think like we're, we're accustomed to either seeing the Jeff Fisher, Pete Carroll, or the the Sean McVay. And I think Campbell might be kind of in between those kinds of things. Like he's basically trying to be the modern Bill Parcells. Him and Aaron Glenn, the defensive coordinator. Like you can see, they're they're both Parcells disciples. And I I think Parcells was a pretty pragmatic coach back at the time. I mean, like Drew Bledsoe led the league in pass attempts probably three years in a row 
like 94 to 97 or, or 95 to 97, something like that. And Parcells was the head coach. So if, if a guy is hard nosed and, you know, Jersey tough as, as Parcells, that, that kind of, you know, that, that kind of uh, cliche of a guy can still throw a lot because his ideolo- ideology is, is pragmatic like that. Then I think Campbell could be that too. So um, I, I think he's, he's going to have the final say more than Lynn. I think it's more like he just knows Lynn and actually, I don't know. This might have been after Parcells retired, but Lynn was with the Cowboys as a running running backs coach, 2005, 2006. I don't know where Campbell was at the time, but it's possible that they linked up just because they know each other, basically, and and mm. not because Lynn's going to run it or design it, but because he he him and Campbell know how to communicate and work with each other, and and it's it's uh, something more like that in my opinion. But if you look at the personnel of the offense, I think you can start to see hints of of what they plan to do uh if you try to just base it on like what he said what campbell says or um what anthony lynn did in the past i think you might get a little off track but basically we have deandre swift in the backfield we have tj hawkinson at tight end and you have two slower smaller receivers not small truly but not big uh quintus cephas and amon ross st brown guys who, who have been productive as pass catchers but don't really have any speed and then you have Brashad Perriman and Tyrell Williams, who I think Williams especially has has a little bit more to offer than fly routes and post routes. But they are generally there, I think, to run fly routes and post routes. They're both fast sideline guys. And if a defense doesn't send their safety after them, you can just chuck it up there. You know, maybe they catch it. Maybe they got a defensive pass interference. Uh, but even just making that one threatening throw, you probably get a different look from the safety the second time you run that play. So having those guys out there, I think – invites like decoy usage pretty clearly on their part, especially when you consider that Goff isn't really a great downfield thrower. So you don't need Goff to be able to throw to them downfield for them to have a utility in pulling the safeties back, but they only have a utility in that case if you're getting the Hawkinson and Swift open in the middle of the field. And I guess to a lesser extent, Cephas and St. Brown, depending on how their competition works out. I don't know how, I don't know if they intend to go one particular direction, you know, decisively, or if they're willing to let it like competition and training camp, play out their plan for them. I guess I could imagine a scenario where Cephas or Sound are productive. Probably only one of the two, though. I think they're fighting over mm-hmm. the same, uh, not not even really like a pie. It's kind of like a half of a pasty. And, and they're fighting over that. And there's, there's otherwise probably some favoritism institutionally towards Swift and Hawkinson. But it makes sense because they would be running in the slot a lot. They would be running in the middle of the field, the intermediate part of the field. And if a safety is going after Perriman, if a safety is going after Tyrell Williams, that's a tough pair of guys to stop if you if one of them is being covered by a linebacker especially. So I think that could make sense. I think you could see Campbell drawing on some of the things that he learned watching Sean Payton with the Saints, getting Michael Thomas schemed open, getting Alvin Kamara schemed open. And I think it's pretty clear they plan to use Swift Basically how the Saints use Kamara, basically how the Chargers use Austin Eckler. And I think if that's true, then Swift is pretty easily justified as, as a second-round pick in PPR scoring and certainly a third-rounder in half-point PPR. Um, I think that Hawkinson is – it's a tough one. Like I don't have a lot of shares, but it's not because I look at his price and say that's, you know, that's wrong or anything. Um, I think he's really good. He was a little tiny bit below base on last year, but um, – he, he was coming back from that nasty ankle issue too. So maybe he's going to be a little healthier this year. Maybe he was going to take a third year jump anyway. So I do like Hawkinson uh, too. I think, I think you got to expect those two to lead the team in receptions. Okay. So Hawkinson and Swift are, are both 
yeah, like going to be the 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 kind of engines of that offense. So if you were to you know try to uh, find some some late round value, you know, like uh, usually you know the once you get past like the fifteenth, sixteenth round, something like that, uh, you start throwing some darts. Um, who is the dart uh, in this particular offense? Is it St. Brown or is it Cephas, uh, one of the deep threat guys? It's tough, man, because I I think Cephas and St. Brown are both good prospects and like they are both uh, eventually anyway going to be starter viable, at least from the slot. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch how that shakes out, though, because Cephas is, of course, not very even even the 4-7 time at the combine, if you make it more like a 4-5-8 uh, of the Wisconsin track, he's that's that's basically the same time. So he's he's really like a four six five kind of guy. Sometimes this the forty time doesn't translate perfectly to functional wide receiver task speed, and and maybe Cephas is a guy who, even if he's the slowest receiver on the field, maybe he runs this kind of route faster than than uh, you know the the base the the middle range kind of guy. Like maybe he's just functionally uh, he makes up for it somehow because production wise. It's always been there. Wisconsin, it was always there. Last year, it was only in flashes last year, but he was running outside for the most part last year. So um, the fact that he kept up at all as a rookie, I think is pretty encouraging. And you would think that if he if he is poorly projected outside because of the speed, then moving him into the slot should be a way to, to make him viable again. So the only problem is him and St. Brown cannot compete with, with Williams or Brashad Perriman for downfield tasks. Like they're, they're just not really eligible for it. So they have to do a lot of winning underneath and in the intermediate. And I think they have to totally shut out the other one, you know? So uh, maybe, maybe that doesn't, maybe that scenario doesn't hold because maybe, Paraman or Williams gets hurt or maybe Cephas or St. Brown gets hurt. And maybe then the three that are left add up obviously enough. Uh, but in the meantime, I feel like they just, especially with Swift and Hawkinson, if you, if you assume that they're going to take as, as big of a share as, as, as I do anyway, then it, it's hard to see how there's room for more than maybe two uh, actual target kind of options. And so I, I don't know. It's hard for me to, unless injuries hit, it's hard for me to imagine Paraman Williams, uh, St. Brown, Cephas thinning out enough for that remaining pie to be especially useful. But if you do get an injury to St. Brown or Cephas, I definitely like Saint, the remainder to be the clearly best slot receiver on the team because the, they're, they're both good. They can run routes. They can catch the ball. They, they, they know how to play receiver. They just aren't fast or big. Right. And, you know, if, if that situation occurs where, where one of them clearly is, is in the driver's seat for, for one reason or another, do you think that just the fact that so much of the pie is already going towards those short and intermediate routes to, to Swift and Hawkinson, that maybe like that, that slot role at receiver just isn't going to be as prominent because they're already going to have so much kind of traffic in there? Right. I would expect the Lions to, to log among the lower wide receiver rep counts this year in the league, and even though they don't project to have many leads at all, if any, because so many of those routes, so many, of, if you assume a three wide base, you're going to have some plays where, uh, I don't know who their other tight ends are, but you're going to have some where it's like Hawkinson is the slot receiver and there's a second tight end playing inline tight end. You're going to have some three wide looks where Hawkinson is the inline tight end, but Swift is the slot receiver and Jamal Williams is playing actual running back. So the number of slot receiver snaps available on the team might not be very high. It might be among the lowest in the league. So uh, th- there's there's a lot working against the uh, Cephas and St. Brown. I think you usually see their prices pretty close to free. So um, I-, I won't say there's, there's a ton of risk with them as long as you're 
limiting your exposure. Um, but if, if you assume any particular floor there, I think you might be getting ahead of yourself. Okay. All right. That, that definitely checks out. Um, anything else to add on to the lines before we move on over to the Vikings? Yeah, Jamal Williams may be a human shield running back. He may be uh, like a short yardage guy they give carries to when they don't want Swift to get hurt. Some of those may even uh, occur in the red zone. Uh, I think he's proven that he's one of the least effective players from scrimmage, though. I think in function, he will be a mascot more than anything else. And I think you got to if you do invest in Jamal Williams, don't go over a certain exposure count with that one either, because if, if Jamar Jefferson is DeAndre Swift's actual backup come week six, I don't think anyone should be surprised at all by that. Wow. Okay. All right. Putting it, putting the hammer down when it comes to Jamal Williams. All right, let's move on over to the Vikings. Um, a lot of the same pieces left over from a year ago. Um, so that not a ton of, of imagining necessary, uh, to, to project, um, this Vikings offense. You got Cousins, you got Dalvin Cook coming off of the career year. Justin Jefferson already established as a, as a bona fide star. Adam Thielen, maybe on the other side of, of his peak, but still an effective player nonetheless when he's healthy. Um, what the big kind of thing that, that people might be inclined to chase in this offense because everything else is so firmed up, um, I think tends to be who's that number three receiver. And now with Kyle Rudolph out of the picture, uh, who's the tight end, uh, to target in this Minnesota offense. So start things off, uh, looking at that, uh, wide receiver three in Minnesota. Yeah. So it might be a bit of a committee kind of thing for that third receiver spot. Uh, Hopefully Chad Beebe gets subtracted entirely from the offense. He's just, it, it's obscene. It's actually like wrong to have him playing NFL wide receiver. It's like make it, if you want to make him a gunner or a punt protector or something like that, fine. But he, don't have him playing receiver. That's ridiculous. It's it's not fair to other receivers in the league. Uh, they, they deserve that rep more. Uh, I think that the days of seeing Chad Beebe uh, going nowhere, uh, are, are finally past us, though. Uh, Irv Smith has been playing a lot of slot receiver the last two years. That's probably going to continue this year. The answer to the question of whether it's more than in the past might depend on a competition in training camp. I don't know. It's possible Mike Zimmer kind of in Kubiak, whichever uh, point in the dynasty we're at, whichever one, uh, if they if they have a set opinion by now of Irv Smith, Maybe they just know like he's only playing uh, whatever 30 snaps games, 40 snaps a game. Maybe they don't believe that. Maybe they're waiting to see how he looks in training camp before deciding. Uh, it's hard in any case to see Irv Smith becoming the breakout player we, that was briefly hoped for when, when Rudolph's release occurred, unless he takes the inline snaps that used to go, or a lot of the inline snaps, I should say, that used to go to Rudolph. That might be possible, but he's so vast. He's so differently built uh, than Rudolph. Yeah. It's like, you're, you're talking like three inches shorter and probably like a good 25 pounds lighter. And if, if he can play in line, great, but it's not often that you find a Johnny Smith kind of guy who's, who's 250 or less and can still maul in the run game. And, and Irv does not seem like one of them. So no. maybe they let him get some of those snaps, but if they don't, Tyler Conklin's kind of just going to be the same as Rudolph, just probably not quite as good. Um, and I wasn't excited about Rudolph in the first place. So I don't really care about Conklin, but in two tight end leagues or leagues that give a lot of points for tight end receptions, I guess he should be uh, like a pretty reasonable breakout candidate because he's, you know, going from nobody to somebody who might catch like 40 passes or something like that. Okay. So that, so we're assuming potentially then uh, that 
that Conklin absorbs that Rudolph role because, like you said, Irv Smith just doesn't really project out to to be like the the inline blocker um, type of setup. Right. So Irv Smith. He drew so the way that they distribute the targets in this offense is is interesting because so much of it is absorbed by by two guys by by Jefferson and by Thielen. They accounted for just under fifty yeah. percent of the targets um, a year ago, and on average, it would have been over fifty um, had Thielen not mi- missed um, a little bit of time. Dalvin Cook drew eleven percent of the targets as well. So I mean that that just that's a lot, and then. Like you said, they might just kind of go committee approach the rest of the way because no one else was over uh, 10% of the target share. Irv Smith was the next guy up at 8.8. So, I mean, that, that might come up a little bit, but but I guess, you know, with the way that you're talking about the the, the post-Rudolph plan, it might not jump as high as, as the Smith optimists would hope. Right. So I get some lingering optimism with Smith. Like he's, he's fine as a pass catcher. It's the snap count that you got to worry about. I don't, I don't know if we see a great reason to believe the snap count goes higher. I think more likely than Smith, if there's going to be kind of like a third pass catcher, who's really useful in fantasy this year, uh, I think it's actually going to be Amir Smith, Marset, the fifth round pick from Iowa, who funny enough reminds me a lot of Stefan Diggs. And I, I know he's not quite as athletic as Diggs, uh, he's certainly a little skinnier. He, he, I think Smith Marside is actually faster than he ran at the pro day. I, maybe I'm just being, I, mean, I am being our, uh, but I still believe it. I, I just think he, that guy's fast as hell. And if you watch him play at Iowa, there were a bunch of plays too where he just, he just has no doubt just victories at the line of scrimmage in a way that you just don't really see that often. There are so many plays where he doesn't struggle to just decisively lose the corner, and on a lot of them, the, the Iowa quarterback immediately proceeds to just kind of like shank punt the ball to the other side of the field and he has to like <laughs> yeah stop on what would have been an 80 yard touchdown and come back to catch like a seven yard pass where he gets just destroyed in the middle of the field by three different defenders so that's what life was like when he was playing in the offense but when you look at that Iowa offense and those games that he played there the last two years uh, they completed 58.4 percent of their passes at seven yards per attempt Amir Smith-Marset caught 59 percent so you can call that baseline, but it's you know 0.6 higher catch percentage than the team baseline, if we're being uh, precise. And then seven yards per attempt as a team compared to 9.1 yards per target for Smith-Marset. He was doing that with over 24% share of the yardage there. So I, I know some people are on Smith-Marset. A lot of people kind of just start, I think, look at the draft capital and are like, oh, he's a fifth-round pick. He's not going to do anything. He's just a, just a backup um, and they look at his, he look at his, uh, you know, receiving volume at Iowa and it's not that high, but when you look at how bad the Iowa passing game was, he, a took a, a pretty big share of it. It's just easy to miss it. And B, he was so far above the baseline that in my opinion, there's, there's no doubt he has skill that most receivers don't. That's, it's not easy to outplay a baseline by two yards when you're keeping up with a baseline of catch percentage. So uh, I think Smith Marset's going to displace Chad Beebe and maybe, Irv Smith even on some of the slot snaps and another understated potential uh, upside avenue with Smith-Marset is the fact that Thielen is getting a bit older and he's gotten hurt each of the last two years. I I think Thielen is very good, but if he gets hurt, they got to go to Smith-Marset. I mean, BC Johnson's still there. I guess I shouldn't totally forget about him. He's better than BB too, Uh, but Smith-Marset is a much better prospect than uh, BC Johnson was. And I, I think uh, once they get him out there, it's going to be hard to put him back on the sideline because he's just so obviously explosive. Okay. All right. So ne- we might actually have a useful wide receiver three in Minnesota. And, and again, um, you know, maybe we do see uh, Thielen, his 
target count uh, come back down a little bit if, if you know, Smith-Marset is able to force the issue that way. Um, I want to round it out with, with uh, some Dalvin Cook discussion. So we know that he... Uh, is coming off that career year. Of course, he was a total league winner for pretty much anyone uh, last year. Um, goes out 312 carries. The only guy with, with more carries, of course, being Derrick Henry um, and 40 more carries than, than Josh Jacobs almost um, as the number three guy. So uh, we don't really think of Cook as the workhorse guy, and we didn't really have reason to because he had gotten hurt um, during his time at Florida State in those first two years in the league. But he's been healthy these last couple of years. But is he one of those guys where you you do kind of have a, an injury red flag even even though he you know is coming off such a a big season and you know maybe compare that to like a Saquon Barkley who is quantifiably coming off of a big injury. Yeah, I'd say it's more like a yellow flag kind of thing because there is a valid risk, like a, or concern, I should say. The risk is real. There's there's no doubt about it. Uh, Dalvin Cook has a shoulder that's a bit of a problem i think it was separated at one point and that's i think he might have separated it more than once actually and that's that's the whole problem when you have that happen to a shoulder it's just never the way it was before and it it gets the same injury more easily from then Uh, i don't i don't think there's much reason to think that like the knee is a lingering concern but he might kind of be uh at a little bit higher risk than some guys of just kind of like muscle injuries because he's just so like just freakishly explosive uh, and again, like that one year at Florida State, he played with a bad hamstring like every game, just like leave at mm-hmm. halftime every game and still somehow had like 1,700 yards. Yeah, so, he'd come uh, off the field, maybe, get maybe rolled he, out and go. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he's a guy who even when he gets hurt, he often can just kind of play through it and it's not a huge deal. Who, who really knows? But with with a guy like him, especially when, when you know he can win your league for you in the event that he has decent injury luck, I don't know practically what you can do other than maybe limit your exposure and if, if you're on the clock for the second overall pick and you're only doing one league this year, I don't see a way you can pass on Cook. If you're doing 10 leagues in that second spot, maybe you do want to take, uh, I don't know, somebody else one of those times. Ideally, you would just kind of get a fifth and sixth pick the next times and just be able to take players at ADP to reduce your exposure rather than specifically swerve out of the way. Um, but yeah, if you can't really, in my opinion anyway, just, just be like, Oh well, Dalvin's due for an injury, so I'm going to go with mm. this other guy. Like, I, he might be, he, you know, maybe he'll, maybe the, he is doomed to a certain number of injuries, but we don't have any better reason to think it's this year than next. You know, and what are you going to do? Fade right. both and, years until he gets hurt again. Right, and we've seen in in the past where you know the the people that were concerned about the injury with him have gotten completely burned the la- each of the last two years. Yeah, it's just, you know, it can happen to any player and especially any running back. Uh, Saquon Barkley coming back from the ACL is more concerning to me than than Dalvin's cumulative injury history. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I just don't really know what you can do other than just, you know, take take that plunge and just know that you really couldn't have done more about it. So then is Mike Boone kind of one of your favorite uh I guess handcuff isn't isn't the right word necessarily, but but like uh, you know, lottery just kind of yeah, lottery ticket, ba- you know, backup target uh, type of guys. I haven't gotten any shares yet. I, got, or, I guess, I'm sorry, uh, Alexander Madison. The, yeah. Oh, Madison, definitely. Yeah, he's a weird one too. Like, I don't know why anyone feels so burned by it. They don't feel burned by like Tony Pollard uh, last year, but because Dalvin Cook didn't get hurt. 
it's like the people who got Madison last year are swearing off of him this year. And even mm-hmm. though he's got, he's worth the exact same projection as he was a year ago, he's going, I want to say something like two rounds later. So to me, that's, it's kind of a you know, very different part of the draft, very different player situation, but it's kind of like the David Montgomery last year or the Josh Jacobs this year. It's like, Everybody hates this guy now, and they're they're just they're not really looking clearly at at you know the details. The actual details are kind of getting lost, and you don't really need to be a, a truther to see why. It's like, oh yeah, of course he he is easily worth this price. He should probably go a round or two earlier because Dalvin Cook's got you know bad injury history. It's not great, and that shoulder especially is something that can go wrong pretty easily. No, absolutely, and uh, didn't mean to to throw you off with, by the the Mike Boone drop. I guess I. Uh... Oh no! I, like, I get my Minnesota so cool. backup How running you... backs, <laughs> and we talked about him earlier. I struggle to talk about it. Yeah, he's awesome. It's uh, if if they cut Gordon or say they're going to cut Gordon uh, while we're here, I'll, I'll be interested in Boone in the twentieth or whatever. <laughs> there we have it. All right, that's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of the RotoWire NFL podcast, brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Try Rotowire today, free for 10 days. Get our premium tools, rankings, analysis, and breaking news alerts. No credit card required. Go to rotowire.com forward slash try. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.